The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Folks, tonight we've got a special treat. As I said, Alan's interviewing me about my book, JFK Assassination, from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. And it's uh, interviews with witnesses and specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter, and www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's book cover. That'll take you right to a place where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on this stormy eve in Kingston. Well, you're certainly welcome, and uh, I might just reciprocate by saying to you, welcome to the show, Brent Holland. Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is really weird, folks, to be on the other end of this. I have very little skills in, in being an interviewee. So um, we're going to be discussing my new book, by the way, JFK Assassination. I'm holding it up right now, Alan, from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to Alan. Where would you like to go, Alan? Uh, I'd like to go out for a cocktail, but instead I'll just sit here and talk to you for a couple of hours. <laughs> cocktail sounds perfect. <laughs> uh, here's what I was uh, thinking. I'm familiar with your book. Uh, the title of which is JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, but it is the subtitle that intrigues me, Interviews with Witnesses and Specialists, including the last interview with Ted Sorensen, JFK's friend and speechwriter. Um, no truer words have ever been written than referring to Ted Sorensen as JFK's friend and speechwriter. He was an essential um, resource and an essential attribute to quite a lot of what we associate with the two years, ten months, and two days of President Kennedy's um, period in office. Uh, but Ted Sorensen actually joined him some time prior to that, and the place I honestly would like to begin uh, is simply based upon my own interest in Ted Sorensen, who's someone, you know, for people who admire President Kennedy and are affected by the consequences of his life and distressed by the ramifications of his death, I think uh, Ted Sorensen is a probably a familiar name, but not, uh, not supremely familiar in terms of all of what he contributed to what we associate with President Kennedy. Tell me how you became aware of Ted Sorensen. Well, going back actually to... Uh the New Frontier, which was that magnificent team that JFK had put together. Uh, I was profoundly aware of the role that uh, JFK's speechwriter Ted Sorensen had played in that New Frontier and uh, had always followed his story. I just became fascinated that a fellow like that could actually, the synchronicity of it all, a fellow that could write words like that and have them be delivered by the President of the United States and also be so in tune to what JFK was thinking and what JFK's values were. It was idealism that brought these two guys together more than anything else. And um, the gods were at work bringing these guys together. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because we know we'll get into it that they both through something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
the 13 days of um, how close the world came to nuclear annihilation. And I say that with all reverence because we were that close. At some point after what you've just described in terms of you coming to uh, a place where you had an appreciation, an awareness of who Ted Sorensen was, uh, at some point thereafter you decided that based upon the work that you were doing with what we refer to, I think, as the Brent Holland Show, and that uh, that's something you've been doing for a number of years, and I've referred to you uh, in the context of that program as one of our relevant chroniclers of what I consider to be maybe the uh, a perishable resource, um, and that is the stories of people of consequence told in their own words. Uh, and to have an opportunity to address them conversationally as opposed to the way we experience everything in history which is one, one way, it's a one-way street, you know, we're on the receiving end. But you've had extraordinary, uh, maybe improbable good fortune uh, having opportunities to speak with, you know, extraordinarily consequential figures, internationally celebrated uh, Nobel laureates, um, environmental and human rights activists, government officials, uh, scientists, humanitarians, all kinds of interesting people. Um, and I believe, although I'm not certain, I believe I understand that you decided basically to simply reach out to Ted Sorensen to see if it might be possible to invite Mr. Sorensen to participate in some interviews. Could you tell me about that? Sure, I'd be happy to, and thank you for those uh, laurels, by the way. That's very kind of you. Um, Ted Sorensen had just released his, his accounts, and I was very interested in having him come on the show because uh, I interviewed Abraham Bolden, who was the first African-American Secret Service agent picked by JFK. Uh, all these shows are in the archives, by the way, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com, as well as connections to buy my book, if you'd like, www.nightfrightshow.com. Um, and several other key researchers, uh, such as Larry Hancock, Lamar Waldron, Jim Diogenio, and uh, I, by no means Mark Lane, uh, not to leave Mark Lane out, some real heavy hitters. I thought, geez, you know, McNamara had just passed away, the Secretary of Defense, and he had just done a documentary, which I thought was riveting, called The Fight of War. And Ted Sorens was really the only one left from the inner circle to be interviewed and I thought I get this done so it was 2010 I called up Lori Morris who was Ted Sorensen's handler if you will and uh, asked her if I could speak with Ted Sorensen and interview him she said well okay let me see what I can do so uh, she called back with a date, and we did a radio interview, and it turned out to be a four-part series. I had Ted on for close to two hours, and it was just riveting. He was very relaxed. Uh, he was anxious to tell people inside stories of Camelot, inside stories of JFK, things that I had been unaware of, uh, things like uh, Jackie Kennedy calling... JFK uh, to bring the kids home during the Cuban Missile Crisis so they could all die together. That's how close we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis, folks. Uh, some other stories, some personal stories, when Ted Sorensen and JFK were first going around the country uh, trying to raise JFK's profile before he was president, uh, when he was still a senator, how they had gotten into a, an airplane that was... Um, just a small little three-seater airplane, <laughs> it had taken off, and uh, the weather was okay, but the, the pilot was kind of a, um, I guess, a homemade pilot, if you will, but he was the head of the Democratic Party in that particular area of the country. I think it was Ohio, if I recall correctly, and Ted was telling me they were flying, uh, flying um, to, from city to city, small little town to small little town. And the plane got turned upside down. And JFK looked at him, and Ted looked back, and they both thought, that's it, we're done for, story over. But the plane righted itself and was able to land okay. And, of course, the 
Pilate apologized profusely. And I asked Ted, I said, was that a metaphor for what was to come? And he said, absolutely, and he laughed. So there's little stories like that in that radio interview. Several months went by, and I had been invited to go down to New York City to interview three Nobel Peace Laureates, um, three women Peace Laureates, actually, from the Women's Nobel Peace Initiative here in Ottawa. And they were Jody Williams, who won the Nobel Peace Award for banning landmines. And Canada has a big part in that as well. Uh, there was Shirin Ibadi, who was from Iran in 2002. She also won the Nobel Peace Prize for human rights in Iran. And Marid uh, Maguire, who had won it in 1978, I believe, was the year for her part in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. So I was down there in New York City anyways, and I knew that Ted had lived, was living in New York City, so I called up Lori once more. And I said, any chance I could do a meet and greet with Ted Sorensen? She said, I'll call you back. Called me back in 10 minutes, and she said, be at Ted's apartment tomorrow, such and such an address, uh, for 4 o'clock. So I virtually could not sleep the night before. I started downstairs the next day without my camera. I got as far as the mezzanine, and I realized something had told me to go back upstairs and get my, my handy cam. So I did, and I went up and got my handy cam and a little uh, tripod for it as well. Went over to Ted Sorensen's apartment, which was wow. <laughs> let me tell you. Well, let me put it this way. It was right beside where uh, John Lennon used to live at the Dakota. So mm -hmm. it looks out on uh, on the Central Park. Park. Central Park, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Did you say you started to, or you had left already, and then you turned around to get yes. your uh, video camera? That's yeah. just very prescient of you. Well, uh, I think idea. God tapped me on the shoulder and said, turn around and get your camera. Yeah, yeah right. Um, because I, I was virtually in the mezzanine. I was off the elevator and on my way out the door, and I just turned around and went right back up <laughs> to the fifth floor and grabbed it. Anyways, Good uh, he, choice. I knocked on the door, and there he was. And I thought he was just going to shake my hand said, and say, hi, thank you, Brent, for stopping by. See you later. Right. And uh, he invited me in. And there was something urgent in uh, when I sat down to speak with him. And this was not an interview, folks. Uh, I was just meeting with him just like that. This was not a setup interview or anything like that. And I asked him if I could record it, and he said, sure. So I set the camera up. Now, something I have to tell you about Ted, Ted was legally blind. He couldn't see. Um, so I wanted to make sure he was okay with the camera. And he said, sure, sure, no, no problem. So we sat on two uh, parallel couches, uh, no more than three feet apart with a little table in the middle, uh, which I put the, the camera on. And we proceeded to talk for, for close to an hour and a half. He was ready to unload. He really was. There was something of urgency in his voice. He was very, very relaxed. And he was telling me stories about uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. He was telling me stories about Caroline, uh, John F. K. Jr., things that went on in the White House. Um, we talked about 9-11, where he was. We talked about all kinds of things. And all those stories, folks, and we'll get into some more tonight, are in my book. Uh, I've got his last interview there in transcript right in the book. And I'm working on bringing to fruition his last interview, which I taped as well, and making a full-length feature film documentary out of that because some of the stuff he said especially about the assassination is pretty darn explosive like I said he was ready to unload folks and in my opinion he confirmed conspiracy and we can get into that later too if you'd like Alan mm -hmm. uh, uh, well I'm when you say that um, mr. Sorensen you felt a sense of urgency that he wanted to unload or that he was anxious. He seemed anxious to you to speak. Uh, we're talking really 
you know, maybe we're talking for all I know, uh, that he was enthused about being able to address the subject that was maybe uh, among the very closest to his heart throughout a majority of his life. And uh, I think a lot of people uh, like, you know, some of the people that we talk to, uh, and I would probably include myself among them, uh, we think of some of these people, certainly during their lifetimes, as either larger than life or almost uh, a mythological figure in a way because we've come to know them indirectly. We know them through the literature. Um, sadly, a lot of people who are interested in in these related subjects are most pre preoccupied with the subject of President Kennedy's assassination. Maybe in part because of conversation with you, I've maybe come to a slight realization that Ted Sorensen was still vibrant, but he was willing to talk about something he wanted young people in particular to know, that there was a time when they could look to the executive leadership in the in the United States of America with admiration and with maybe a sense of inspiration. Did you have a sense that he was mostly interested in sharing the story of who JFK was as opposed to looking exclusively into how he died? Absolutely. Um, he wanted to bring out very clearly how far the country had descended yeah, away from that's, Camelot. That's exactly the sense that I got to. Yeah. Yeah. I know you well enough to know that you consider it a privilege to be able to speak with people um, that you admire and people who have something informative to share. Um, tell, me, tell me during the course of the number of years that you've been conducting these interviews, um, has there been a has there been movement in terms of your attitude, your um, opinions with regard to basic questions about the circumstances of President Kennedy's death? Absolutely, because when I first started interviewing researchers, people like Abraham Bolden as well, first-person witnesses, uh, James Tigg, I was on the fence. On any given day, I would be, yes, Oswald, did it alone on any other day, I would be, no, it was a conspiracy. I was undecided. Then one fateful night, I had um, a CSI, a crime scene investigator, on by the name of Sherry Feaster. And she laid it out using 21st century crime techniques that just weren't available, folks, in 1963. Forensics. Forensics. And she demonstrated, without a shadow of a doubt, that there was two shooters at least in Dealey Plaza that day and that the kill shot came from the front. And I was so shaken by that, I was virtually shaking when I went home. I just kept repeating, it's real, it's real, it really was a conspiracy, it's real, it's real, it's real. And then I had Mr. Bolden on, of course, and then uh, the thing that really nailed it for me is when I spoke with Ted Sorensen and what he told me, uh, that indeed it was a conspiracy. and uh, But not a coup d'etat. I do not feel it was a coup d'etat, and that's where I differ from most people. I don't think Johnson had anything to do with it. But absolutely, there was a conspiracy, without question. And that's where I've changed, uh, Alan, to answer your question, from where I started with this to where I am now. You know, democracy, folks, is us. And this is something, you know, I, I try to grasp with Canadians. They is us, you know. We control them. Every Canadian has a small business. Well, in our case, it's a big business. We call it the government. We, they work for us. We don't work for them. And this is something that is inherent in democracy. And I think it's something that we've lost perhaps on both sides of the border. And it's something we are striving to get back. And I would argue, I think we lost that perhaps on November 22nd, 1963. We certainly lost a lot right around the world. We lost a lot of hope, without question. Well, book... you, you conclude your book, and I'm not, uh, this isn't, um, you know, I'm not giving away, I think, too much, uh, just to say that there is something I thought was very well expressed um, at the very conclusion of your book. And if you 
you'll allow me, I'll, I'll quote from the conclusion of JFK assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. You said, it is said you can't see the light without the dark, goodness without evil. There is some merit to this. If we were on a fully lighted stage and someone entered with a lit candle, it is doubtful we would even notice. However, if you put us all onto a stage immersed in suffocating blackness, unable to see our way, then someone entered with that same candle. That candle will shine the brightest it has ever shown. The 60s were like that, for John, Martin, Bobby, and especially for Ted Kennedy, for, for, I'm, for Ted Sorensen. For one brief shining moment, we were all inspired by the light. Uh, nicely stated, um, why did you want to conclude with such a sort of um, a romantic kind of uh, expression rather than, you know, the usual assassination-related stuff, which is um, sometimes pretty dry and frequently just about things that don't include the human heart. Hope. The Kennedys, for me, the administration, Bobby, Teddy, uh, Ted Sorensen, the whole New Frontier team, was about hope for a better, not only America, a better world. A world based on principle and vision of coming together and achieving together rather than shooting each other. And I wanted to leave, um, I wanted to end it with that vision of hope to let people know that it, if we had it once, we can have it again. Uh, you know, I, I had mentioned uh, Ted Sorensen's final interview I had with him, and I said, you know, I said, Ted, it was a phenomenal team you had around you. I mean, can you speak to that, the New Frontier? And he said, you know, he said there was a song out at the time called Camelot, and he said um, the musical and everything, and we got tagged as being the Camelot. He said, not true. He said, we were just flesh and blood. And I thought, my God, yes. And this is what I want the students of today to know that they were just flesh and blood like you. They had a vision and they went to achieve it. And you can too. And that's why I ended the book with that. Mm -hmm. You know, if I learned one thing from Ted Sorensen, it was dialogue before bullets. When we discussed the Cuban Missile Crisis, yeah. he told me, he said, you know, Brent, he said, the, the only option really was to do the quarantine because we could smack the Russians anytime we wanted to with our nuclear weapons. We could go into Cuba anytime we wanted. That was the final option. That wasn't going to be our first option. And I thought, wow, that's profound. Because far too often today, we see a military option come to the forefront first. And I'm not, discard I'm not discarding any military options. Um, I think that has to be on the table, especially when you're dealing with a terrorist group like ISIS right now we're dealing with uh, and other things as well but definitely if you can reach out and talk to somebody and give me your story we'll tell you ours we'll see where they crisscross maybe something can be done before we start annihilating people again um, Ted Sorensen participated in a, an extraordinary gathering in Cuba that included Robert McNamara and some of the relevant participants of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Did he discuss that with you? He did. They were invited to Cuba. Castro was there, of course, and everybody, he said, was sitting around a table, boasting and toasting and eating. Yeah. And uh, he got upset with Castro because he had just found out that Castro had ordered a first strike had wanted a first strike. He was pushing Khrushchev for a first strike against the United States. <laughs> right, yeah. And Sorensen and McNamara just couldn't believe it. And um, he chastised Castro, uh, Sorensen did, for, ca for calling America the scum of the earth and eradicate the scum of the earth. Mm. Um, he said, you know, that's it was really inflammatory language uh, because the world was on the precipice. Uh, and uh, he just thought Castro was a little bit of a buffoon, I think. But he also thanked Castro for using those words and pushing Khrushchev for that first strike. And I thought, geez, that's a little strange. But then Ted said, 
You know, it made Khrushchev realize just what a loose cannon he was dealing with with Castro and that he'd better resolve this thing peacefully as quickly as he can. Otherwise, they are going to end up in a nuclear war. He didn't trust Castro after that, I don't think, Khrushchev. I can talk about the, the Bay of, uh, of Pigs, if you'd like, and what Ted told me on that. Well, absolutely, sure. What? I was going to go someplace else, but, but I'm Well, we'll come to... back. You know, we can yeah, come back to that in sure. just a second. I'll go very quickly, and I'll take a couple of minutes. No, take uh, your time. It's, okay. it's, it's your show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Alan Dale's interviewing me tonight about my book, folks. Uh, JFK assassination. You can triple W dot night fright show. You can find Alan's coordinates there as well. Um, all I have to say is I had asked Ted about the Bay of Pigs and he said, well, thank you for not sliding it into the Cuban Missile Crisis because too many people do. And I said, well, no, of course, they're separate. And I said, what happened there? And he said, well, Kennedy inherited this plan. And the idea was to take 1500 Cuban exiles to go back into Cuba Start an uprising. A popular Start an uprising, uprising right. trying to get this wave of, uh, of uh, uprising going and taking over Castro. Now, this was according to Alan Dulles and the CIA. Yeah. Alan Dulles was the right. head of the CIA in those points. Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, did his own internal examination, his own internal uh, commission, if you will, to see if this plan was going to actually work out. And it came back, hands down, no, this thing is doomed to failure. Alan Dulles sat on this and never even told the president of the United States that the plan was doomed to failure and that if he went ahead with it, President Kennedy, it was not going to happen. So but he not merely he not merely sat on it. At the same time he's sitting on it, he's saying to JFK, you know, this is our position, this is what we're, you yeah. know, intent Advocating. upon doing, and we have every reason to be confident in its success. He, his deputy director, Richard Bissell, was one of the principal architects of the plan, Absolutely. both of whom lost their positions or were allowed to resign, I think, um, you know, with honor, in a way, ultimately, uh, JFK um, gave Alan Dulles some kind of you know, award for all of his invaluable service to his nation and all of that. So he was able to, you know, it wasn't like the hammer came down the day after and JFK had simply cleaned the house at the top of the CIA. But, yeah, I hear you. That's an interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually bombastic. And, you know, the, everybody says, well, Kennedy, he was a coward. He never sent in the air... Uh, the air support, support that he was supposed to. And I asked Ted specifically about that. I said, what happened to the air support? And he said, well, the deal on that was um, they were already floundering on the beach. Uh, they were completely surrounded by the, um, the Cuban army. They were not going anywhere. They were being captured. It was too late to send in the air support. And there was a big risk that if American airplanes started flying over Cuba on an offensive role, not just defensive, that the Soviets would retaliate, uh, either in Berlin or even worse, with a nuclear attack. So he said Kennedy realized that um, the CIA had lied to him and all the military people had lied to him about this whole operation. And he, he said he didn't want to dig the hole any deeper than he was already in. So we probably wouldn't be here right now speaking, Alan, if uh, he had a sent in that air support. What the what he figured the Joint Chiefs were trying to do was blackmail him into rescuing the whole operation, and therefore he would be forced to escalate it and send in more troops, more U.S. ground troops, uh, and take over the Cuban regime. And that's something he did not want to do with the Soviet Union standing guard over Cuba. So uh, those are two major things. He did not trust the CIA afterwards. I asked him that specifically. You're saying JFK did not. That's correct. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. The Joint Chiefs had brought a plan to JFK in 1961, uh, first year of his administration, uh, first year of his presidency, which proposed a first strike, a nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And I wonder if you have an opinion, because I know you've taken a great interest in in Ted Sorensen, you've had this extraordinary privilege, and you're very
very generous to share with all of us um, what's come as the result of your personal experience with Ted Sorensen. Do you think? Uh, do you think Ted Sorensen could have been aware of such a thing? And if so, uh, especially knowing something about his religious background and his, you know, genuine uh, sort of advocacy of being a proponent of peace during times of war, how do you think he would have responded? Well, I can tell you, uh, very simply, they both knew, Ted Sorensen and JFK, any type of nuclear exchange or war was not winnable. It was not winnable. Uh, as opposed to members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, like he had mentioned, Curtis LeMay, uh, who was the head of SAC at the time, thought that it was winnable because right. the superiority of weapons was on the United States side. Yeah, they're used to thinking in World War II terms. Precisely. And, uh, not, know, not the action. Not the ramifications, yeah, right. conventional war, you know. And this was one of the major problems we see time and time again. They were, they just seem to be bewildered the fact that, yes, there's going to be fallout. There will be birth defects. Uh, it is an end-of-the-world scenario. Yeah. Uh, you cannot win this thing at all. Uh, forget it. You know, it's too bad that Stanley Kubrick uh, couldn't have produced um, Dr. Strangelove just a year or two sooner because <laughs> there's so much at the conclusion of that film that is satire but is relevant to what we're talking about in terms of distinction between the respective mentalities of people, you know, uh, Curtis LeMay is like the poster child for, you know, caveman-type mentality about this kind of thing yeah. versus uh, more elegant and more elevated um, and more humanistic um, awareness um, in, on the part of JFK and Ted Sorensen and others. Uh, in any Curtis, event, I just... Curtis LeMay actually said uh, when the conclusion, when there was a peaceful conclusion for the Cuban Missile Crisis, he said it was the United States' greatest defeat in the history of its military. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that just Interesting shows. Interesting times. Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, he became, uh, are you aware that Curtis LeMay, wearing a suit, a coat and tie, uh, was paraded in front of the press by uh, George Wallace in 1968, uh, when Wallace decided to leave the Democratic Party and would run as an independent, uh, run for president as an independent. He had a running mate, and his running mate was none other than General Curtis LeMay. Did you know that? Oh, I did. I even asked yeah. Ted about that, and uh, he said that's the type of racist and um, lack of vision. Mm -hmm. Every a lot of derogatory things that I won't go into. Oh yeah, for sure. No <laughs> that uh, that uh, Kennedy was up against with LeMay, mm -hmm. um, and they were concerned also during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a concern, a legitimate concern. Uh, that a coup may take place not only in Soviet Russia, they had feared one actually had happened, but also right, right in the United States uh, because they were privy to some conversations that had taken place. Kennedy had left a, a board meeting and left the Joint Chiefs of Staff there and quote-unquote... With the tape was running, yeah. Yeah, quote-unquote, didn't forgot to turn off the tape. Yeah, I'm sure right. he forgot to turn it off. Mm -hmm. It sounds like President Kennedy, right. So uh, some of the stuff that was said by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to each other was pretty, pretty close to treasoners. And like I said, they wanted to go in. They wanted to um, virtually take over Cuba. And they didn't care about the consequences of that. If it started a nuclear war, it started a nuclear war. They didn't really care. That's dangerous. That's exceptionally dangerous thought. That's the times we were in in those days. Kennedy was the exact opposite. He represented hope. He hated war. Like I said, well, before. he was just—he was certainly uh, an uncommon occupant, uh, a, uh, an interregnum between, you know, the uh, personification of American, you know, military integrity in the form of uh, Dwight Eisenhower. And, uh, you know, business as usual in terms of um, the profitability of war and, and by, in the JFK's successors. Um, 
So he was, uh, I always think in terms of, uh, you know, JFK himself being an aberration in the system and that the system ultimately had to make some sort of uh, self-correction. But um, he was indeed a proponent of peace during times of war and to have Ted Sorensen uh, acting as a resource and um, sounding board and someone, you know, with whom he shared uh, probably many fundamental things in terms of um, philosophy, uh, I think is was pretty fortuitous for the entire world. Like you said, not just the United States. Very much so. And, you know, I, I just want to mention this. Uh, when I spoke with Ted, I asked him about the assassination. Now, one thing that you've got to realize, that was the worst day of, of Ted Sorensen's life. Mm-hmm. And he did not like talking about it to anybody. Um, I was felt very honored that he was relaxed enough that day to even voice his opinion. Yeah, uh, we're, the, but you were feeling it out as you went, if I recall. God, recall. yeah, I had right? to. You didn't, because you knew if you press too hard, he'll say, well, it was nice. Thanks for stopping by. Here's See you later. Hat. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really had to... Mm, walk on eggshells, if you will, because I had to respect the fact too that this is horrible to bring these up, to bring this up. That was his brother. JFK was his brother in many, many senses, and uh, he lost a lot when he lost JFK. And I asked him about the assassination, and uh, he said the fact is that Kennedy had enemies in the right wing, particularly because of civil rights, mm-hmm. and because of his American University speech. Um. He also had enemies among organized crime, as did his brother, Robbie. I'm not going to give you it all. Uh, considering the number of enemies he had in the military and intelligence circles in the United States, Lord knows they had reasons to get rid of him. And that's coming from Ted Sorensen. That's bloody ominous because he was right there in the inner circles. For so for him to come out and admit that um, to me and on tape is pretty darn. Well, it's like pointing a finger. Like I said, he doesn't name names. Um, there's also some other quotes that are in there that are more concrete in determining the fact that there was a conspiracy, in my opinion, and. Um, it's all there in the book, JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, www.nightfrightshow.com. As I said, if you're a novice to the Kennedy assassination and want to know more about all the working parts, this is a good introduction. It's written for you. But at the same token, if you're at the other end of the spectrum um, and you're into the Kennedy assassination and everything Kennedy, which most of you are that are listening right now, it's got the last interview in it from Ted Sorensen. That's worth the price of admission alone. I'm not making any money off this thing, folks. Trust me. <laughs> but the information is there for you and further generations down the road. And 100 years from now, all these people, and myself included, will be gone. All that's going to be left is their testimony right here, their transcripts in their own words for for future researchers and for you as well. Uh, James Tagg has just passed away. Uh, I know a lot of the the researchers are up there in age as well. Some of the first-person witnesses have had some trials and tribulations this year with their own house. Um, This is historic. It's an historic document. It was designed that way. It was designed very specifically for anybody doing research to get as close to the original source as possible and quote that original source instead of through a third or fourth or fifth party book um, when you're doing your research. So that's why I wrote the book. I've never heard you really discuss in detail how it is that you became um, a an interviewer, how it is that you came to a point where you're hosting your own program and then somehow by by as a result I suppose of your own either ambition or tenacity or something, you have these um, extraordinary conversations with extraordinary uh, people. I had moved from Montreal to uh, a mining city called Sudbury, 
Sudbury also boasts uh, a great university called Laurentian University. They had sent out a communique asking for volunteer radio hosts. Oh. So um, <laughs> at first I thought, okay, I'm going to start a jazz show. And then I thought, you know what? I'm really a fan of Art Bell's show, Coast to Coast. And most people that are listening right now will know what that show is uh, as well. Uh, I'm going to start something like that just for fun, based on the paranormal and conspiracies. So I started that, but with more of um, a realistic edge towards the conspiracies. And I wanted to do the first year a special on the JFK assassination, where I would invite eight people in the inside of a month to come on and tell their stories. So I had contacted JFK Lancer, Deborah Conway, to help me out with getting guests. Oh, really? And yeah, it was fantastic. Um, I didn't know that. I got Abraham Bolden to come on the show through Deborah. I got Larry Hancock. Fans of the show will, will know he's been on many, many times. One of the premier researchers, Jim Diogenio also. Um, I'm trying to think of some others, Lamar Waldron. And I'm leaving people out, and I shouldn't be. Uh, William Law came on the show. Um, Sherry oh, Feaster, for sure. Sherry Feaster, thank you. Yes, thank you very much yeah. for reminding me. And there was a couple of others, too. And so this is when it all started to take off, because then I thought, well, you know, this was so successful, and I learned so much. I'm going to do something for the Martin Luther King assassination as well. So I had mm -hmm. some more people on, and then the Bobby Kennedy assassination. And then it just took off from there. And, of course, I do the UFO thing as well, and I also do the paranormal thing. Uh, there's something out there. I don't know what it is. I've never ha seen a ghost. I've never seen a UFO, but many people have. And uh, it's just it's an entertainment show. It's fun to do, and uh, it's not a journalism show. Don't mm -hmm. be mistaken. I've had many people yell and scream at me. It's, an ent it's like going to see a horror film based on a true story. How's that? <laughs> how about an allegedly true story? See, I was with you right up there until the <laughs> ultimate moment. Um, you know, well, that's you know, that's an interesting segue, possibly. Uh, tell me, w w without regard to the substance and the significance of uh, um, the parts of your book that we've already referred to, uh, with regard to your role as a a show host, I'll put it like that. Tell us about some of your favorite subjects or the favorite shows or favorite interviews that you've done. Uh, and it doesn't have to be related to JFK or the assassinations. Well, of course, the Ted Sorensen one shines through, and all the JFK assassination researchers I've interviewed all, all shine through. But to uh, go into the paranormal, uh, without question, Christine Corda, uh, she underwent a real Roman Catholic exorcism, and uh, very authentic, true story. It's in the archives uh, for you to listen to. Uh, you can decide for yourself if what she is saying is true. Uh, I believe it is. I think she was indeed um, possessed, if you will, uh, by something. Uh, her description, her authenticity when she described these things happening to her, was unprecedented. And the Roman Catholics folks, uh, as you all know, they don't, don't just hand them out, <laughs> you know, uh, like a newsletter or something when you're, when you're asking for an exorcism. They recommended that she get one. And they put her through all kinds of psychological, physical tests to see if uh, there was something else that could be causing this. Anyway, she went through it, and uh, she's fine now. So that one sticks out in my mind. And this is what I like to go for, is real true stories. Uh, also, in the UFO realm, I've had many people on who claim to have been abducted. Again, there's something there. I don't know what it is, but it seems to be part of the human condition, if you will, that many people feel they've been abducted. So if people are afflicted and are in pain, my attitude is, well, let's explore it. Let's try and find out what's going on here and relieve their pain. So you're not making, you know, absolute declarations on behalf of people who make extraordinary claims. You're no. saying, well, this is certainly an interesting story. Precisely. And, uh, you know, we might learn something just by examining it. Yeah, and I think also, you know, uh, people can come out of the woodwork then and, said, and say, well, you know, I've had this same type of experience. What is going on here? 
and I think that's therapeutic in itself as well. So, and it's entertaining. Um, you know, again, I want to underline that entertain entertaining part. It's like when you watch a ghost show on television. You know, um, whether you believe it or not, it's up to you. But it's an entertainment show. It's there for entertainment purposes, and this is why I do the show. And hopefully, we can pass along some information that you could use somewhere as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why. Uh, what about some of these other interesting uh, encounters? Like, I'm aware that you spoke with Jane Goodall, and uh, you know, you've spoken to you know people in government, um, people who are distinguished in their respective fields. What what has what has stood out among those sorts of guests or those sorts of topics when i was in sudbury that i'm now living in a place called kingston and it's a tv show night fright when i was living in sudbury i had the opportunity because i was quote unquote the news director of the uh, local campus radio station where i started this show cklu to interview jane goodall Mm -hmm. and some of the questions from some of the people that were Official press people in Sudbury were kind of bizarre. They were asking Jane Goodall what to do about uh, roadkill. Uh, they had a raccoon living in their backyard was another question. What should they do about that? And I thought, what? what did it, what's going on here? <laughs> it's Jane Goodall, guys. Uh, do a little they music. may not have known who she was. Is that what we're supposed well, to conclude? And, I don't know. And, and just after that, a couple of days after that, I was at the university and I had a 22-year-old come up to me and ask me what the Holocaust was all about anyways. So I said, okay, we got a bit of a disconnect here. And I started the Brent Holland Show, which is more like Charlie Rose. And Charlie Rose has always been a big hero of mine. And I was lucky enough to interview uh, Nobel Peace Laureates, like I said before, Ted Sorensen. Um, I was lucky enough to interview uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, the Speaker of the House of Canada, Senators of Canada, the Attorney General of Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very lucky uh, in the, the amount of people that were willing to come on the show. Now, I want to reiterate, both shows are broadcast through the campus um, radio stations uh, right across the country. So... Both shows are volunteer shows, and the Brent Holland Show is designed specifically to inspire students to achieve what they thought they could never achieve before. Some of the people, like like Jocko from uh, Shanana, have been on the show, and he, I mean, this is an historical guy, folks. He was at Woodstock. He's from Shanana, and he knows all these great people, and he's inspiring when he speaks. Chris Weber is another one. Three Emmy Awards. My goodness, worked at Discovery Channel. And they each, in turn, inspire people when they speak uh, to go on and achieve bigger and better things. I had um, Dr. Collins on, who broke the genome. Uh, mm-hmm. People like that of that stature. Uh, Nobel Peace physicists came on the show, etc., uh, etc. Et and war heroes and things like that. Because I wanted to educate the students to more than what's being offered, I guess, on social media. And uh, the shows are up there as well on the on YouTube, the Brent Holland Show. Mm-hmm. Some profound things. And by the way, folks, Jane Goodall, here's how I can tie it into Night Fright, believes fully in Bigfoot. And the reasons for it are succinct, and they make perfect sense to me because she told me that she travels around the world into the deep bush everywhere she goes. Uh, natives come up to her and tell her about this big creature and it's all described the same. Usually it's gray. Uh, it's a big furry thing. It's not a man. It's not an ape. Uh, but every indigenous culture has something like this. And she said, what's... Yeah, in Canada, we call them the we call them politicians, by the way. Um, uh-huh. Rub it a bang. Rub it a bang. And uh, she said, what's interesting is she's not soliciting these stories. They come to her with it. Because they want to know what this thing is they saw, and she fig- they figure she's a knowledgeable person. So is she a this- zoologist or is she an anthropologist? What is she? I mean, we associate I associate her mostly with uh, the research into uh, deep research into the community of uh, chimpanzees Very that much. she worked with for so many years. Yeah, and her pacifism and her mm-hmm. you know her 
she's an extraordinary human being. Uh, but I'm not clear, honestly, I've forgotten if she's an anthropologist or uh, a zoologist. What is she? Do we know? I'm pretty sure she's an anthropologist, not a zoologist. Okay. Uh, she is also a, a, um, a peace messenger for the United Nations. Right. Mm -hmm. Kofi Annan had asked her to be a peace messenger, messenger of peace, I should say. Mm -hmm. And she certainly does that as well. Uh, so yeah. that's, I'm all about inspiring people to get out there and go for it. <clears throat> I think the more people we have, like a JFK or a Ted Sorensen, to go out and change the world and believe they can change the world, the better. Well, I appreciate your um, advocacy that, um, you know, I remember the phrase, uh, every man, every person can make a difference and each person should try. Uh, associated with JFK. Um, where do you think the story is right now? I realize that you don't define yourself or represent yourself or claim to be, you know, a researcher per se in terms of somebody who's out in the field or interviewing anti-Castro Cubans or stuff like that. Um, but but I know that you do speak with a lot of people. Uh, you and I share that in common. And uh, I'm curious about where you feel uh, the story is, I'm referring to, you know, basically the implicit subject of your book, which is President Kennedy's assassination. Um, where do you think the story is now that we're in January of 2015, and where do you see it going from here? I think we're closer than ever before for full disclosure. I think it's pretty much common knowledge right now that there was indeed a conspiracy. Um, I think the astounding work that researchers have done on their own to put the, to eliminate bogus uh, stories and also bring new stories and new evidence together. Mm -hmm. I think we're closer than ever before. And I think for me, a big turning point was Sherry Feaster's work, uh, 21st really? century crime street. Yeah, absolutely. She's a CSI. She's got the science. Uh, this yeah. is stuff that she's put people behind the bars, uh, behind oh, yeah. bars with. Uh, it's common knowledge right across um, police forensics, and to me that's a huge, huge turning point is we finally have the scientific proof. Mm. I want to thank Alan Dale for interviewing me tonight about my book, JFK Assassination, from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, which features Ted Sorensen. www.nightfrightshow.com. You'll find both the link for this book and two DVD documentaries I've done and Alan's information his connectivity right there on the website. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza. First person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.